0: part the second chapter six of jude the obscure by thomas hardy this librivox recording is in the public domain jude's old and embittered aunt lay unwell at mary green and on the following sunday he went to see her a visit which was the result of a victorious struggle against his inclination to turn aside to the village of lumsden and obtain a miserable interview with his cousin in which the word nearest his heart could not be spoken and the sight which had tortured him could not be revealed. His aunt was now unable to leave her bed and a great part of Jude's short stay was occupied in making arrangements for her comfort. The little bakery business had been sold to a neighbour and with the proceeds of this and her savings she was comfortably supplied with necessaries and more, a widow of the same village living with her and ministering to her wants. It was not till the time had nearly come for him to leave that he obtained a quiet talk with her and his words tended insensibly towards his cousin. "'Was Sue born here?' "'She was, in this room. They were living here at the time. What made he ask that?' "'Oh, I wanted to know.' "'Now you've been seeing her,' said the harsh old woman. "'And what did I tell he?' "'Well, that I was not to see her.' "'Have you gossiped with her?' "'Yes.' "'Then don't keep it up.' She was brought up by her father to hate her mother's family, and she look with no favour upon a working chap like you, a townish girl, as she's become by now. I never cared much about her—a pert little thing, that's what she was, too often, with her tight, strained nerves. Many's the time I've smacked her for her impertinence. Why, one day when she was walking into the pond with her shoes and stockings off, and her petticoats pulled above her knees, afore I could cry out for shame, she said, Move on, auntie." This is no sight for modest eyes. She was a little child then. She was twelve if a day. Well, of course, but now she's older she's of a thoughtful, quivering, tender nature, and as sensitive as—'Jude!' cried his aunt, springing up in bed,—'don't you be a fool about her!' No, no, of course not. Your marrying that woman Arabella was about as bad a thing as a man could possibly do for himself by trying hard but she's gone to the other side of the world and mid never trouble you again, and there would be a worse thing if you, tied and bound as you be, should have a fancy for Sue. If your cousin is civil to you, take her civility for what it's worth, but anything more than a relation's good wishes it is stark madness for ee to give her. If she's townish and wanton it may bring ee to ruin. Don't say anything against her aunt. Don't, please." A relief was afforded to him by the entry of the companion and nurse of his aunt who must have been listening to the conversation, for she began a commentary on past years, introducing Sue Bridehead as a character in her recollections. She described what an odd little maid Sue had been when a pupil at the village school across the green opposite, before her father went to London, how, when the vicar arranged readings and recitations, she appeared on the platform, the smallest of them all, in her little white frock and shoes and pink sash how she recited Excelsior, there was a sound of revelry by night, and the raven, how during the delivery she would knit her little brows and glare round tragically and say to the empty air as if some real creature stood there, Ghastly grim and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore, tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore. She'd bring up the nasty carrion board that clear corroborated the sick woman reluctantly, as she stood there in her little sash and things, that you could see in almost afore your very eyes. You too, Jude, had the same trick as a child of seeming to see things in the air." The neighbour told also of Sue's accomplishments in other kinds. She was not exactly a tomboy, you know, but she would do things that only boys would do, as a rule. I've seen her hit in and steer down the long slide on yonder pond, with her little curls blowing one of a file of twenty moving along against the sky like shapes painted on glass and up the backslide without stopping all boys except herself and then they'd cheer her and then she'd say don't be saucy boys and suddenly run indoors they'd try to coax her out again but it wouldn't come these retrospective visions of sue only made jew the more miserable that he was unable to woo her and he left the cottage of his aunt that day with a heavy heart he would fain have glanced into the school to see the room in which Sue's little figure had so glorified itself, but he checked his desire and went on. It being Sunday evening, some villagers who had known him during his residence here were standing in a group in their best clothes. Jude was startled by a salute from one of them. "'You got there right enough, then?' Jude showed that he did not understand. "'Why, to the sea of learning the city of light you used to talk to us about as a little boy is it all you expected of it yes more cried jude when i was there once for an hour i didn't see much in it for my part out crumbling buildings half church half arm-house, and not much going on at that you are wrong john there is more going on than meets the eye of a man walking through the streets it's a unique centre of thought and religion the intellectual and spiritual granary of this country all that silence and absence of goings-on is the stillness of infinite motion, the sleep of the spinning-top, to borrow the simile of a well-known writer. Oh, well, it med me all that, or it med not, as I say, I didn't see nothing of it the hour or two I was there, so I went in and had a pot o' beer and a penny loaf and a of o' cheese, and waited till it was time to come along home. You've joined the college by this time, I suppose?" Ah, no, said Jude. I'm almost as far off that as ever. How so? Jude slapped his pocket. Just what we thought. Such places be not for such as you, only for them with plenty of money. There you are wrong, said Jude with some bitterness. They are for such ones. Still, the remark was sufficient to withdraw Jude's attention from the imaginative world he had lately inhabited, in which an abstract figure, more or less himself, was steeping his mind in a sublimation of the arts and sciences, and making his calling and election sure to a seat in the paradise of the learned. He was set regarding his prospects in a cold northern light. He had lately felt that he could not quite satisfy himself in his Greek, in the Greek of the dramatists particularly. So fatigued was he sometimes after his day's work that he could not maintain the critical attention necessary for thorough application. He felt that he wanted a coach, a friend at his elbow, to tell him in a moment what sometimes would occupy him a weary month in extracting from unanticipative clumsy books. It was decidedly necessary to consider facts a little more closely than he had done of late. What was the good, after all, of using up his spare hours in a vague labour called private study without giving an outlook on practicabilities? "'I ought to have thought of this before,' he said as he journeyed back. It would have been better never to have embarked in the scheme at all." than to do it without seeing clearly where i am going or what i am aiming at this hovering outside the walls of the colleges as if expecting some arm to be stretched out from them to lift me inside won't do i must get special information next week accordingly he sought it what at first seemed an opportunity occurred one afternoon when he saw an elderly gentleman who had been pointed out as the head of a particular college walking in the public path of a park-like enclosure near the spot at which Jude chanced to be sitting. The gentleman came nearer, and Jude looked anxiously at his face. It seemed benign, considerate, yet rather reserved. On second thoughts Jude felt that he could not go up and address him, but he was sufficiently influenced by the incident to think what a wise thing it would be for him to state his difficulties by letter to some of the best and most judicious of these old masters, and obtain their advice. During the next week or two he accordingly placed himself in such positions about the city as would afford him glimpses of several of the most distinguished among the provosts, wardens and other heads of houses, and from those he ultimately selected five whose physiognomies seemed to say to him that they were appreciative and far-seeing men. To these five he addressed letters, briefly stating his difficulties and asking their opinion on his stranded situation. When the letters were posted, Jude mentally began to criticise them. He wished they had not been sent. "'It is just one of those intrusive, vulgar, pushing applications which are so common in these days,' he thought. "'Why couldn't I know better than address other strangers in such a way? I may be an impostor, an idle scamp, a man with a bad character, for all they know to the contrary. Perhaps that's what I am.' Nevertheless, he found himself clinging to the hope of some reply, as to his one last chance of redemption. He waited day after day, saying that it was perfectly absurd to expect, yet expecting. While he waited he was suddenly stirred by news about Phillotson. Phillotson was giving up the school near Christminster, for a larger one further south, in Midwessex. What this meant, how it would affect his cousin, whether, as seemed possible, it was a practical move of the schoolmasters towards a larger income in view of a provision for two instead of one, he would not allow himself to say. And the tender relations between Phillotson and the young girl of whom Jude was passionately enamoured effectually made it repugnant to Jude's tastes to apply to Phillotson for advice on his own scheme. Meanwhile the academic dignitaries to whom Jude had written vouchsafed no answer, and the young man was thus thrown back entirely on himself as formerly with the added gloom of a weakened hope. By indirect inquiries he soon perceived clearly what he had long uneasily suspected, that to qualify himself for certain open scholarships and exhibitions was the only brilliant course. But to do this a good deal of coaching would be necessary, and much natural ability. It was next to impossible that a man reading on his own system, however widely and thoroughly, even over the prolonged period of ten years, should be able to compete with those who had passed their lives under trained teachers and had worked to ordained lines. The other course, that of buying himself in, so to speak, seemed the only one really open to men like him, the difficulty being simply of the material kind. With the help of his information he began to reckon the extent of this material obstacle, and ascertained to his dismay that, at the rate at which, with the best of fortune, he would be able to save money, fifteen years must elapse before he could be in a position to forward testimonials to the head of a college and advance to a matriculation examination. The undertaking was hopeless. He saw what a curious and cunning glamour the neighbourhood of the place had exercised over him. To get there and live there, to move among the churches and halls and become imbued with the genius loci, had seemed to his dreaming youth, as the spot shaped its charms to him from its halo on the horizon, the obvious and ideal thing to do. Let me only get there," he had said with the fatuousness of Caruso over his big boat, and the rest is but a matter of time and energy. It would have been far better for him, in every way, if he had never come within sight and sound of the delusive precincts, had gone to some busy commercial town with the sole object of making money by his wits, and thence surveyed his plan in true perspective. Well, all that was clear to him amounted to this, that the whole scheme had burst up like an iridescent soap-bubble under the touch of a reasoned inquiry. He looked back at himself along the vista of his past years and his thought was akin to Heine's. Above the youth's inspired and flashing eyes I see the motley mocking fool's cap rise. Fortunately he had not been allowed to bring his disappointment into his dear Sue's life by involving her in his collapse, and the painful details of his awakening to a sense of his limitations should now be spared her as far as possible. After all, she had only known a little part of the miserable struggle in which he had been engaged, thus unequipped, poor and unforeseeing. He always remembered the appearance of the afternoon on which he awoke from his dream. Not quite knowing what to do with himself, he went up to an octagonal chamber in the lantern of a singularly built theatre that was set amidst this quaint and singular city. It had windows all round, from which an outlook over the whole town and its edifices could be gained. Jude's eyes swept all the views in succession, meditatively, mournfully, yet sturdily. Those buildings and their associations and privileges were not for him. From the looming roof of the great library, into which he hardly ever had time to enter, his gaze travelled on to the varied spires, halls, gables, streets, chapels, gardens, quadrangles, which composed the ensemble of this unrivalled panorama. He saw that his destiny lay not with these, but among the manual toilers in the shabby purlieu which he himself occupied, unrecognised as part of the city at all by its visitors and panegyrists, yet without whose denizens the hard readers could not read nor the high thinkers live. He looked over the town into the country beyond to the trees which screened her whose presence had at first been the support of his heart and whose loss was now a maddening torture. But for this blow he might have borne with his fate. With Sue as companion he could have renounced his ambitions with a smile. Without her it was inevitable that the reaction from the long strain to which he had subjected himself should affect him disastrously. Phillotson had no doubt passed through a similar intellectual disappointment to that which now enveloped him but the schoolmaster had been since blessed with the consolation of sweet Sue, while for him there was no consoler. Descending to the streets he went listlessly along till he arrived at an inn and entered it. Here he drank several glasses of beer in rapid succession, and when he came out it was night. By the light of the flickering lamps he rambled home to supper and had not long been sitting at a table when his landlady brought up a letter that had just arrived for him. She laid it down as if impressed with a sense of its possible importance, and on looking at it Jude perceived that it bore the embossed stamp of one of the Colleges whose heads he had addressed. "'One! at last!' cried Jude. The communication was brief, and not exactly what he had expected, though it really was from the master in person. It ran thus. Bibliol College. Sir, I have read your letter with interest, and, judging from your description of yourself as a working man, I venture to think that you will have a much better chance of success in life by remaining in your own sphere and sticking to your trade than by adopting any other course. That therefore is what I advise you to do. Yours faithfully. T. Tetefany, To Mr. J. Fawley, Stonemason. This terribly sensible advice exasperated Jude. He had known all that before, he knew it was true, yet it seemed a hard slap after ten years of labour and its effect upon him just now was to make him rise recklessly from the table and, instead of reading as usual, to go downstairs and into the street. He stood at a bar and tossed off two or three glasses, then unconsciously sauntered along till he came to a spot called the Four Ways in the middle of the city, gazing abstractedly at the groups of people like one in a trance till, coming to himself, he began talking to the policeman fixed there. The officer yawned, stretched out his elbows, elevated himself an inch and a half on the balls of his toes, smiled, and, looking humorously at Jude, said, "'You've had a wet young man!' "'No, I've only begun,' he replied cynically. Whatever his wetness, his brains were dry enough. He only heard in part the policeman's further remarks, having fallen into thought on what struggling people like himself had stood at that crossway whom nobody ever thought of now. It had more history than the oldest college in the city. It was literally teeming, stratified with the shades of human groups who had met there for tragedy, comedy, farce—real enactments of the intensest kind. At four ways men had stood and talked of Napoleon, the loss of America, the execution of King Charles, the burning of the Martyrs, the Crusades, the Norman Conquest, possibly the arrival of Caesar. Here the two sexes had met for loving, hating, coupling, parting, had waited, had suffered for each other, had triumphed over each other, cursed each other in jealousy, blessed each other in forgiveness. He began to see that the town-life was a book of humanity infinitely more palpitating, varied, and compendious than the gown-life. Those struggling men and women before him were the reality of Christminster, though they knew little of Christ or Minster that was one of the humorous things. The floating population of students and teachers, who did know both in a way, were not Christminster in a local sense at all. He looked at his watch, and, in pursuit of this idea, he went on till he came to a public hall, where a promenade concert was in progress. Jude entered, and found the room full of shop-youths and girls, soldiers, apprentices, boys of eleven smoking cigarettes, and light women of the more respectable and amateur class. He had tapped the real Christminster life. A band was playing and the crowd walked about and jostled each other and every now and then a man got up on a platform and sang a comic song. The spirit of Sue seemed to hover round him and prevent his flirting and drinking with the frolicsome girls who made advances, wistful to gain a little joy. At ten o'clock he came away, choosing a circuitous route homeward to pass the gates of the College whose head had just sent him the note. The gates were shut, and by an impulse he took from his pocket the lump of chalk which, as a workman, he usually carry there, and wrote along the wall, "'I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Yea, who knoweth not such things as these?' Job 12.3 End of chapter 6